and welcome to the latest edition of Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack, and my breakfast eating co host, Stephen Toole. Yeah, sorry, I had a mouthful of porridge then. Uh, I wasn't expecting you to introduce me quite so soon. Um, um, it's early in the morning from my point of view, so uh, porridge will get me through the day. And a lot has happened actually since we last recorded uh, an episode that involved both of us. Yeah. We've had our first live recording with an audience. And we've had me running for party president. Mm-hmm. And as is now traditional, we've had a new MP join. I do like the idea that possibly defecting MPs are sat around in Parliament thinking, you know, when am I going to join? Oh, hang on a minute. Mm-hmm. New edition of Nevermind the Bar Charts being recorded soon. I'd better join now. Uh, but, so I wasn't able to make our live recording. So apologies uh, to anyone who got tickets for that, hoping they would they would get to see. There was me. a whole queue of there people. Was just, there were almost riots, Mark. <laughs> I can tell you. Uh, unfortunately, the first hustings of the then presidential race clashed with our recording. But you, uh, I believe, Stephen, from reactions on social media, it appears you did quite a good job. Yeah, and th- had... those are the reactions from me on social media <laughs> saying that I did a very <laughs> good job. Uh, yeah, no, well, we've done. We've, done um, we've had our own solo excursions because, of course, you interviewed Paula Surridge um, about the kind of whole left-right. Yeah, which uh, was dynamic in British politics and how that crosses over with the authoritarian libertarian. The show is available um, in our feed indeed. for anyone who's missed it yep, to go so back and listen to. Really good piece. Yep. Uh, and then we had the live show, which, uh, though you weren't able to join us, thankfully uh, it wasn't just me rambling for an hour. We had two fantastic special guests in um, Polly McKenzie, now Chief Executive of Demos, but who was um, Nick Clegg's Director of Policy during the Coalition Government, and Sean Kemp, former Number 10 Advisor, uh, for most of the coalition government and the Lib Dems head of political communications. And it was really interesting to hear their reflections, not only on uh, their time in coalition um, and the way in which Europe crept into the uh, dynamics uh, of the Conservative-Lib Dem relationship there, but also their take on uh, Dominic Cummings. The title for the podcast was, Is Dominic Cummings a Genius? And I particularly liked uh, Sean Kemp's point that uh, he thinks the genius of Dominic Cummings is that he's convinced everyone that all the chaos that's uh, now mounting up for this government is part of a deliberate strategy. And he said, if only I could have managed to persuade everyone that the Lib Dems getting rubbish press when I was in charge of media meant that I was brilliant <laughs> at my job, then that would have made me a genius that's too. Excellent point. I, I notice you haven't mentioned one other attribute about Sean, which I'm slightly relieved about, which is he and I work together for several years. So hopefully that doesn't mean he spilt the beans on all sorts of things about me <laughs> on the show. I didn't ask about um, that, you'll be pleased to That know. show was all recorded and we will be releasing that as a special podcast episode in the next few days. It will go up after this one goes up, so do make sure you subscribe to Nevermind the Bar Charts in your favourite podcast app and you will also get to hear Stephen, Polly and Sean, blessfully free of me. <laughs> so you mentioned the other hmm. thing that's uh, been big uh, news certainly for you is about the um, uh, post of party president. Now, this is one of only two posts that the party directly elects from all its 120,000 members. Uh, so, I guess, uh, can I ask you what's the role and why are you wanting to do it? Yeah. So, the role of party president has a short formal job description in the party constitution. But I think it's fair to say that if you had Christine Jardine here, if we had Christine, who is the other candidate running for it, um, I think she and I would, you know, would, would pretty much be in agreement that we are each defining the post in a different way. And therefore, the answer to what is the role of president, in a way, is what members are getting to choose in this, in this ballot. My take on the role is the president has a key role in making sure we get our organisation and our strategy right, 
and to, in that sense, be one step away from that immediate gravitational-like pull that being in Westminster and being within the sort of 24-hour news cycle and the parliamentary pressures, which always tends to draw you towards the short term and thinking about the next Westminster general election. But to really prosper and succeed as a party, we need to think beyond that. We need to remember all the vital elections at all sorts of other levels of government. And we need to also think longer term. After all, the general election after next may well be before Christmas 2020. Yeah. <laughs> so happy thoughts. Happy thoughts. <laughs> happy thoughts. Um, so my pitch is that what the president can do is help make sure we have that broader and longer term focus in our strategy and in our organisation so that far more of us get to win in the future. Okay, so um, this isn't going to be a, a pack for President podcast, but I am interested, what would be your number one priority? Um, well, it is, it is that broader focus. So let me give you one example. There's a really fun debating point, and maybe we should do this for a future podcast, about who has more power, a Liberal Democrat mm-hmm. backbench MP or the Liberal Democrat leader of a council. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there are now 50, 5-0 Liberal Democrat council leaders or co-leaders. Um, around the country. So despite the rapidly growing then parliamentary party, there are still more Liberal Democrat council leaders than there are. And actually, and they are, you know, exercising power, bringing liberalism and democracy into their own communities day in, day out, week in, week out. And of course, it's also the case that the better we do in local government, the better we do in national elections. Mm-hmm. A big part of our success and our return to the national political stage this year was fueled by the May local elections. So it really is remembering that there is more to the party than what's happening tomorrow in Westminster or indeed in the next general election. It's that, that's the, I think the key focus that I, I would look to bring. We'll find out um, in early November. Right, so poll, uh, votes go out? Ballots will go out towards the end of October. Okay. Voting will be concluded in early November. Um, there's a small possibility the election may be delayed if a general election gets called, mm-hmm. although I think it's now looking likely that if a general election does get called, it will be so late in the process that it may well be we decide to just let the presidential election run through to completion, sure. albeit the last few days of it rather overshadowed by everything else. <laughs> but there's a point at which it's easier to just carry on and finish the job rather than put everything on hold and have to return to it um, at a later date. Uh, so, yeah, if you are a party member, watch out uh, in your email inbox or on your doormat for in amongst all the other communications from the party. Um, <laughs> there'll be online voting for people for whom the party has a working email address and then postal ballots for other people all towards the end of the month. Now, the third thing you mentioned as uh, events that have happened since our last joint podcast before we did our solo tours was uh, Heidi Allen's defection to uh, to the Liberal Democrats. I mean, I guess it doesn't really count as shock news. I think it had been long anticipated Mm. that she would eventually make the move. But it's an interesting one, I suppose, because uh, she she has gone on that um, journey from uh, rebellious Mm. Conservative MP before it was fashionable to um, uh, setting up the independent group, Mm. later Change UK, then going back into a parliamentary party version of the independent group and now has finally uh, made the, uh, uh, the step that Sarah Wollaston uh, and others before mm. her have made. And she stands in a constituency that's quite an interesting one mm. because South Cambridgeshire, which is her seat, uh, is one where the Liberal Democrats have been doing quite mm. well in local elections Sign and would be yeah, targeting... Sight of a dramatically good Liberal Democrat general uh, local election gains, as yeah. you say, um, really good local party. I think it's fair to say that her joining is um, a little bit more at the controversial end of the people who have joined us. There's been, you know, there, there, there's definitely been some quite um, 
strained tensions, shall we say, between her and the Liberal Democrats in the past when uh, being on opposite sides of the political fence. Although I did notice that Ian, our PPC in the constituency, um, who is therefore now stood down as our PPC, he, he, I, th I thought actually he, it was a really good example of how to be, of how being honest is a mm -hmm. good move in politics and indeed in life in general. Because I think if he had simply tweeted last night that, oh, this is brilliant, this is wonderful, a lot of people might have thought, do you really think that? And actually, he was much more honest in terms of saying that personally it was you know, frustrating for him because he'd been really looking forward to fighting for the seat, but he saw the bigger picture and really yeah. welcomed her to the party. I think a really good example of how, and I mention that because quite often, I think in the, particularly the internal communications in the party, we do go a little bit for the everything is wonderful, everything yeah. is brilliant. And this is a classic example of actually now admitting that, you know, you've got a little bit of regret that you're not going to run be able to run for parliament in that seat yourself actually makes the rest of the message far more convincing. And we also had another uh, aspirational MP uh, standing down, uh, Dominic Greaves, the mm. Democrat opponent um, as well, and he just kind yeah. of, when the, the news emerged, tweeted out about, uh, yeah, it's true, but I'm at the theatre with my yeah. mum at the moment, I'll tell you about yeah. it tomorrow, <laughs> but for now, remain alliance, hashtag. Yeah. Uh, which again was a nice way of yeah, just exactly. um, breaking the news. And, and likewise, Rod, I mean, he had one of the best campaign videos actually I've seen for a Liberal Democrat prospective candidate was one that Rod had done mm -hmm. um, a few weeks back. I th certainly when I last looked, it was still pinned to the top of his Twitter account. I guess it might not be anymore. <laughs> um, so again, somebody who was clearly putting in a lot of hard work for a seat. And again, full credit to him. I think what is... I think there are two things that are, that are helping smooth the way with some of these decisions. One is obviously the bigger picture of Brexit. You know, if you are going to ask somebody to make a sacrifice, if you are asking somebody to give up on their hopes, where they put huge amounts of hard work into trying to realise their hopes, there's got to be something in it. Mm -hmm. And stopping Brexit is clearly a big prize people can, can understand the importance of. It is also the case um, that sadly, I think because we did quite so badly in 2015, there are not very many seats where there has, say, been a PPC who's been building up through three different general elections and therefore would be really gutted. Mm -hmm. if Because there were PPCs who had been building things up through several elections. Unfortunately, almost all of them got well and truly trounced in 2015. Yeah. Not quite all of them. Um, and Leila Moran, actually a really good example of doing just well enough in 2015 to still have a chance. And then, hooray, winning the seat in 2017. Mm -hmm. There are some other people who have likewise, and other seats have likewise managed to survive just well enough to then have a chance of bouncing back. St Albans and Daisy Cooper would be a really good example, again, mm -hmm. of a really top lived end prospect. But generally, across the country, um, because we don't have that many seats where there's been a team working at it 10, 20 years, I think there's a little bit more of a, uh, of a willingness, therefore, to think, OK, let's take a hit this time yeah. because of that greater prize of stopping Brexit. And the, um, the interesting thing, I suppose, in t looking at the... Conservative and indeed Labour rebel MPs that have joined the Liberal Democrats is how they're choosing um, to fight the next election, mm. whenever that might be, yeah. whether it's in November, December, mm. or in spring 2020. So you've got, uh, if we just quickly run through them, you've got uh, Chuck. Are you sure you're going to be able to name them all? I, Since well, you've made a brave I've, commitment here, Stephen. Uh, I've actually got them on a sheet yeah. of paper in front of me just to make sure I did. Maybe so. we should post up a little bingo card <laughs> people there. Um, so we've got uh, Chuka Amuna um, from uh, Labour. And uh, then you got uh, Philip Lee yep. uh, from Bracknell. Uh, Nicola Horlick, um, who's not a rebel MP, but mm. I will mention, the reason I'm mentioning her will become clear in a minute. And Luciana Berger, mm. again from, from Labour. And the reason I group those four together mm. is because they're interesting examples of what has clearly become a, a Lib Dem mm. strategy 
of how to target seats where the party uh, demographically and in terms of their remaining claimness makes them top prospects, but where the party would probably struggle if it isn't able to attract some media focus and attention and be the most viable, hope that it yeah. hopes, most viable uh, opponent to the Conservatives in that seat. So you've got Chukar and standing in the cities of London and Westminster, where the Lib Dems came third, 14,000 votes behind last After time. general election, general European election, election results very Indeed, different. Yeah, yeah. I feel I'm going to be saying this three you more will. times. You will. Uh, which will itself <laughs> which is be revealing. Anyway, isn't it? Uh, yeah. You've got Philip Lee, who is going to stand in the next door constituency to Bracknell um, against John Redwood mm. in Wokingham, again, where the Lib Dems are third and start 24,000 votes behind in the 2017 election, general election. different. <laughs> Uh, Nicola Horlick in uh, Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea and Fulham. Chelsea and Fulham, thank you. Greg Hans. Uh, I want our Fulham listeners to be tweeting in anger Quite at right. you. Uh, and uh, again, the Dems third, 18,000 votes behind in the 2017 general election. And uh, Luciana Berger in uh, Finchley and Golders mm. Green, the Dems third, 21,000 votes behind. So it's, it's interesting that four of the, probably the party's most high profile, either MPs or in Nicola yeah. Horlick's case, are kind of, um, you know. Mm a very famous person in her own right, are being targeted at seats which, on any kind of objective basis, looking at the mm. general election only, you would say those are no-hope seats. Why on earth are the Lib Dems wasting yep. such top yep. talent on seats where they haven't yep. got a chance? And, and yet, yeah. the decision has been taken that these are good prospects for the Lib Dems uh, when you look at them in terms of the European votes and, and so on, and therefore give them a bit of an extra mm. fillip with these, uh, these, these top talent, and they come into play. Yeah, and... The other thing that's notable about all of those seats is if you look at the sorts of criteria the party used to use for picking target seats. So way back in uh, what would it have been, sort of winter 2005, early 2006, I, with the then director of campaigns, Paul Ranger, sort of overhauled and reviewed our performance targets for key seats, what they were expected, you know, what a seat had to do if it wanted to be a key seat, what measures of activity and support it had to have. Um, and in different ways, those sort of metrics we've sort of used previously and used since, it wasn't mm -hmm. that was a radical departure, but, but it meant I spent quite a lot of time you know, looking in detail about what are the sorts of measures that we use and so on. I'm pretty confident that on almost all of those measures, almost all of those seats wouldn't have made it. And you're, you're therefore absolutely yeah. right, I think, Stephen, to highlight that the party is taking a gamble. I think it's the right gamble to take, but obviously it is a gamble, to say there's a whole load of seats that demographically look like they are very promising territory mm. for the party, where there is some electoral proof behind that as well, if you look at the European elections, but therefore we're going to be really serious about winning them. And that's what takes the party from thinking about, well, we might try to fight a general election where we're hoping to win 20, 10 to 20 extra seats into a general election where we're hoping to potentially gain many, many more than that. Yeah. Um, and that's a gamble. Um, I think there's good reasons to think the gamble will come off and will work. One of, I think, the hot, the trickiest elements of the gamble and actually I think the one in which I would say probably the party is least prepared is it will make persuading members to go and help in target seats and supporters as well to go and help in target seats really tricky because you'll be seeing the party fighting all sorts of seats where you will as you say look at 2017 general election result think why the hell is the party fighting x seat mm -hmm. and if the yeah. party's fighting x seat well I'm in a seat where we've got a bit more at the 2017 general election so surely I should stay in my seat so yeah. so making sure that we can regularly explain the logic of what the party's doing and why it's important to go and help will be really important and I say that because in 2010 when the party had the huge surge in the polls courtesy of the first televised yep. leaders UK wide 
Uh, leaders debate always have to remember to say UK-wide because there have, for example, previously been televised debates between leaders of Scottish parties for Scot uh, Scottish Parliament elections, but first UK-wide one. Um, loads of Liberal Democrats all around the country got terribly excited. The willingness of people to go to move and help in target seats reduced massively and we suffered as a result yeah. and therefore our vote share in the end did go up a bit, but our number of seats fell. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, the other um, four uh, MPs, just to prove I haven't completely forgotten them. Um, I, so we've got Heidi Allen, who we've yep. mentioned, and she's standing in her, mm. her current seat, and ditto Sarah Wollaston, mm. and I think Sam Gmar as well. Mm. Um, so they will be standing on their uh, in their home turf where previously they were Conservative Party candidates. Angela Smith, has she said yet where she's going to be standing, so or if, if she's going to be standing? As, there hasn't sort of been public confirmation mm -hmm. as yet of, of what her plans are. Okay. Okay, so it's it's going to be an interesting test, I suppose, of um, whether or not, when you look at the demographics and mm. the European vote, whether that brings into play seats that, mm. um, when you look at on a rational basis, um, you would say uh, aren't aren't at all targets. And of course, in Luciana Berger's case, there's another. Um, Can I push pick you up on well. that use of the word rational? Because mm -hmm. I mean, in a sense, you're right. They wouldn't be target seats on the traditional Lib Dem way of looking at things. But that said. Both Labour and the Conservatives in previous elections yeah. have often won fairly implausible-looking seats on huge national swings. Sure. So one of the questions, a different version of the point I was making previously, is to say, are the Lib Dems going to be able to win seats this time in the way that other parties win yeah. seats elections? Or indeed, and maybe this is the better example, actually, the SNP. If you think about the SNP's landslide victory in Scottish seats, now that was in part based on mobilising a huge number of very enthusiastic people in a very mm -hmm. short period of time, but also on a massive nationwide, in this case Scottish-wide, swing of support yeah. to them and therefore picking up all sorts of seats that party had never, would, you know, would never even really thought of being in contention in. Um, and, and that's why I sort of pick on the word rational, as it were, because it's, it's not irrational yeah, yeah. to say, well, maybe this time the Lib Dems can do yep. what some other yep. parties do quite regularly. Yeah, no, that's, that's a fair point. I guess I was meaning traditionally when you look yeah. at um, how you, parties pick their target seats, they just work their way down the list of uh, majorities from last time, and you know, pretty much the top yeah. fifty or whatever it might be will be yeah. this time's targets. Mm. And then there will be some developmental yeah. seats where there have been particular yeah. areas of growth in the party yeah. since last time. But it's interesting when you look at London, and uh, this was something that um, Stephen Bush, the new statesman, let's give him a shout out again. Yeah, uh, Stephen! <laughs> uh, and on, wonderful co-presenters of um, Stephen as well. Yay! Picked up on when presenting, do you mean me there? Uh, picked <laughs> up on when uh, talking about um, the, this move was mm. that actually the places where the Lib Dems bucked the trend mm. in the 2017 election actually were in a number of remain heavy London mm. seats. And so that actually on that rational basis uh, as well, there is a good basis mm. for thinking that um, the strategy this time of focusing particularly on uh, those areas yeah. makes sense. Um, I mean, I guess to give the slight pessimistic take mm -hmm. on it, to reverse our roles yeah, yeah. for the last few minutes, um, it, as, as some listeners stuff. may know, you know, one of my th things I've done previously in the party was I was the campaign manager in Hornsey and Wood Green when we went from... Uh, third place and 11% over mm -hmm. two general elections to Lynn Featherston getting elected. Um, and, you know, that just tremendous, that was a tremendous period of sort of growth and success in that constituency. We were one of the top six best results for the party, two general elections in a row in terms of massive vote increases. Um, but there are two neighbouring constituencies, Holden and St Pancras and Islington mm -hmm. South. Islington South is nearby, doesn't quite not quite adjacent to Hornsey and Wood Green. Um, and certainly in both of those, uh, we had some good vote increases 
uh, partly driven by the same underlying demographic and national trends that also gave us a bit of a following wind and haunting mm -hmm. with green. Um, but in neither of those other two constituencies did we get over the line and win. Yeah. Even though actually at the beginning of that Hornsey with Green story, if you compared Hornsey with Green and Islington South, you would have definitely said Islington South was the more winnable, stronger record of Lib Dem success, much stronger local party organisation. Emily so Thornbury's seat. It now, yeah, now Emily Thornbury's seat. Um, so one of you know the more pessimistic lesson, as it were, to draw from that is yes, the national swing and all of that did get us some really nice vote increases in those other couple of seats, but it was only the absolutely obsessive level of local organisation in Hornsey and Wood Green yeah. that took us over the finishing line. And I did, um, as a reminder, sort of day in, day out of how much we had to achieve, we, after having had the first great election result, big swing, up into second place, we had a majority of 10,614 to overturn. Um, the second, you know, that was, having just had one of the best results in the country, yeah. we still had another 10,000. And so for that parliament, actually part of my computer password in that parliament was the digits 10614, so that every day, several times a day, <laughs> I was reminding myself of the scale of the task. Um, and I know those who worked with me will, uh, will, will definitely bear sometimes the scars as well as the pleasures yeah. of that obsessive focus. So that is the risk. And there was, a similar, the, there was a similar risk um, in my equivalent stamping ground mm. at the same time uh, in Oxford. Mm, yes, of course, where, good, good um, pair of seats. Oxford West and Abingdon with Evan Harris was a Lib Dem seat from 1997 until uh, 2010. And in that election, Oxford East, its neighbouring constituency, was a top target. There were 993 <coughs> votes between yeah. Labour and the Lib Dems, it having been a safe Labour seat for the previous decade or so. And in the 2010 election, um, we lost both. Mm. Uh, and that was partly, mm. only in part, because resources weren't necessarily allocated yeah. as well as they should have been. There were lots yeah. of other issues at play as well. But it does point to that danger, perhaps, of spreading yeah. resources too thinly. Conclusion, deliver lots more leaflets. <laughs> it's always a conclusion, isn't it? <laughs> always is. Um, should, we, should we move on to We should. So we were, uh, the other issue we wanted to talk about, we've not talked about it mm. before because I think, I suspect both of us feel it's a bit of a, a red herring mm. of a debate, but it is still current, is the whole idea of a government feel, of national unity. I feel sorry for herrings of other colours. <laughs> um, Truly dismissed well, from the idioms of the English language. I can I Can I distract you? But a red herring this, was chosen because it's partly about Corbyn. Can I distract you then Go from on. this topic? Which is, a little while ago, I discovered, I think, my favourite bit of idiom knowledge. Because I've always had a little bit of a beef about the phrases you can't compare apples, apples and oranges. Because you clearly it's can. apples and pears. Or apples and pears, either. Because if you had one apple and I had 5,000 pears we could both conclude with absolute certainty that I have more fruit than you. You can compare apples and pears, and you can compare apples and oranges. However, a little while ago, I discovered that that phrase has variations in different countries around the world. So that sort of phrase is very mm -hmm. common. And in lots of other countries, it is two different fruits, and therefore I object to it as well. But Romania, apparently, the internet <laughs> not, tells not me... Not Romania, as in the... Um... <laughs> The place where Romaniacs live. No, indeed, Romania. Romania, the okay. E Eastern European country. Uh, the internet told me, still tells me, how its phrase is that you can't compare grandmothers and machine guns. Now <laughs> that's a proper incomparable pair. Yeah, yeah. None uh, of this apples and oranges nonsense. If we're going to do, so, idiom, if we're going to do idiom diversions, then yeah, my no, please do, because we might be able to is... therefore skip discussing this topic. I'm, I'm looking at the clock. I'm seeing if I can run down the clock here. Oh, I very... might even distract you with Brexit. This is very Dominic Cummings of you, isn't it? How can you run down the clock to the 31st of October deadline? Uh, the um, idiom that is Boris Let Johnson's favourite. Let me read to you a four-hour Gladstone speech. Uh, the Boris Johnson uh, favourite of having your cake and eating it, mm. which um, I think 
always sounds odd in English because it does sound like, well, if I, if I have my cake, of course I should be able to eat it. And, and I always think, I, is but the idea that actually, you're meant to somehow be eating other people's cake? But well, the this, idea is that I mean, having, I'm all for eating having other it cake, but... means eating it. Yeah. And that's what it obviously means. And so you can't eat the same cake twice, mm. is the whole point of it. And likewise, it has uh, different versions I- across the world. Oh, right. And in Italy, uh, I think there's quite a sexist version, but there's another one which I will repeat, which is uh, about looking oh, at. Oh, actually, the, I think I've you remember. Yes, looking yes, at so the um, quickly from the inappropriate Italian yeah, yeah. version. So the the one that I've seen that's slightly cleaner is the looking at the wine barrel through drunken eyes, mm. and it's that idea you can't just you know keep on drinking from the same wine barrel, and it's the same with the cake and having it and eating it, but somehow. Because it doesn't really work in English, Boris Johnson's able to actually make it sound logical. Of course, well, I should, if I've got my cake, then yes, I should be able mm-hmm. to eat it. Uh, so it's an interesting way in which actually yeah. idioms can be used and manipulated uh, to fulfil um, politicians' ends. But government and national unity, that's what we were going to very briefly discuss. So this idea re- reared mm. its head in uh, August yep. in particular. Um, it's been doing the rounds for ages, but in particular in August um, as the... Uh, 31st of October Brexit deadline creeps ever nearer and the idea that Boris Johnson would have to be got rid of as Prime Minister in order that a new Prime Minister would be able to negotiate an extension with the EU. And it's never completely gone away even with the mm. um, Ben Act now meaning that uh, Boris Johnson will be compelled and has admitted in court he will be compelled to um, ask for an extension. Uh, and it's come up again and uh, I guess the question comes down to... Uh, should Joe, from a Lib Dem point of view, should Joe Swinson actually, if push comes to shove, support Jeremy Corbyn as a caretaker Prime Minister, if that's the only way in which an extension can be negotiated with the EU to prevent a no deal? Now, I don't think that situation is likely to arise for the reasons I've just mentioned, that Boris Johnson, I think, is moving towards a position where, one way or another, he is going to have to extend, and so I don't think there's going to be a caretaker Prime Minister. But it does kind of pose all these usual hypothetical arguments about whether or not yeah. the Lib Dems' job is basically to prop up Labour in some way uh, or other. Yeah, because the, the basic Corbyn Easter argument is, hey, Liberal Democrats, you're horrible, you're evil, you're just really Tories, we really loathe you, but you must absolutely do what we want. Yeah, um, yeah. You might notice there's a slight problem <laughs> in, that, in that argument. And even I, quite I, sensible people yeah. like Will Hutton yeah. and Steve Richards, who you know, both of them I have a lot of respect yeah. for, make that kind yeah. of argument. I mean, it, it, it's quite a frustrating yeah. one, I think, from a Liberal Democrat well, point the, of and view. And they just... The parallel it reminds me of is you know, the arguments about, you know, are you in favour of torture or not? And then, well, what if you had, say, arrested a terrorist and there was a bomb about to go off in a building but you didn't know which building and the only circumstance in which you can get that information is to torture the person? Are you still against torture? And the problem with that argument about, well, surely is torture not acceptable in that circumstance, is when you look at the practical reality of the circumstances, that, as it was slightly abstract philosophical debating point, is not the choice in reality that people are faced with. Mm. And so the choice in reality, for example, is that information extracted from torture is often highly unreliable. So, so you're, you're yeah. sort of setting up what could be, you know, if you're doing a, a you know, putting on a, a debate or a discussion in it as part of a university course or whatever, what could be quite a fun sort of abstract theoretical question to help tease out some arguments. Yes, but the practical reality is that question about, well, if Bush comes to shuffle with the Lib Dems back, it just is making a whole load of assumptions. Yeah. For example, one of the things it glazes over is that in order for a government and national unity to be formed and to be able to do stuff, it needs a majority in Parliament. That requires more than Labour plus Liberal Democrats plus SNP yeah. plus Green plus Ply. It requires some of those Tory rebels and other independents to back it. 
and lots of them have been really clear that Corbyn is a complete non-starter for them. So what, you're, what, what the question really boils down to is this impractical plan that doesn't work, should the Liberal Democrats back it? Yeah. Uh, though there is, of course, a scenario in which Boris Johnson orders Conservative MPs to abstain in order that Jeremy Corbyn can be forced into power and... But, of uh, course, if, if in, that, in which case, which way the Liberal Democrats well, indeed, then, you know, yeah, yeah. You know it's, so, so, so I think, I think the mistake like, I, I that Will Hutton makes and Steve Richards make is not being clear about what is actually the set of circumstances in which your question is relevant, yeah. in that sense. And I think the other... I'm not, I take the practical point about the first law of politics being being able to count, uh, you know, Lyndon Baines mm. Johnson's um, observation. I think there's, uh, there's another point that was made by Sean Kemp actually in, in questions after our live podcast, so I'll, I'll, this is an exclusive for this Woo. podcast. Uh, he made the point that uh, in principle as well, there is a real issue for the Liberal Democrats having just brought on board someone like Luciana Berger, who left the Labour Party mm. after uh, year, well, months, maybe years of bullying uh, on an anti-Semitic mm. basis and the Labour leadership not doing all that it could have done in order to stop that. The Liberal Democrats haven't taken on her, board, her on board um, because of that, that scarring experience for her and then turning around and making Jeremy Corbyn Prime Minister. How does that sit mm. um, from, from that principal point of view either? So there's the kind of the practical thing of the votes just don't stack up and then there is the principle of actually we don't think Jeremy Corbyn is a fit and proper person to be the Prime Minister of this country and, for and, however and, short a period of time. And also you only have to look at all of the procedural manipulations around the Labour Party conference to stop, you know, Labour Party Remainers being able to sort of win yeah. a vote to make yeah. the Labour Party reign. You say, state, no, look, I've just manipulated things to dish my own side, but now trust me, yeah. is again a deeply implausible pitch for Jeremy Corbyn today. And it is really the, the... I'm trying to think of sort of not too rude a way of describing this, but there is there is a strain, and you do see this in all parties, but there is a strain that's particularly strong amongst Corbyn supporters at the moment where you feel they're more interested in being able to say, I'm holier than thou, yeah. than actually achieving a substantive policy end that will make life better for people yeah. in Britain. Because if you really are passionate about tackling poverty, if you're really passionate about providing better public services, we need to stop Brexit. And the way to stop Brexit requires votes in Parliament. Insisting on, it's got to be Jeremy Corbyn or nothing, is basically saying, OK, I'd rather have Brexit. Yeah. And the reality is, anyway, that uh, a lot of this is about positioning because uh, there aren't going to be a huge number mm. of Labour Lib Dem battlegrounds in the next election in any case. Uh, the vast majority of the seats the Lib Dems will be targeting are Conservative held at the moment. Mm. Uh, and uh, and much of the, the battle is going to be in the North Midlands will be Labour versus Conservative and perhaps Brexit Party mm. coming into play, we'll see. So it's, uh, for, for uh, both parties mm. I guess it kind of works in terms of the Liberal Democrats making it clear to uh, those from Labour and Conservatives who are joining the party or supporting the party, we really don't want Jeremy Corbyn uh, anywhere near number 10. And equally, it appeals to Labour trying to shore up its vote and saying, look, you know, those evil Liberal Democrats are still thwarting us from getting into power, just like they did during the coalition. So weirdly, it works for both, mm. um, both sets of, uh, of voters. Um, and that's an interesting kind of way of setting up the dichotomy that could come into play in the next election. It was a piece you picked up from Prospect magazine, mm. written by Gabby Hinsliff, looking yep. at, um, I think it was called the, the End of the Liberal Tory. Mm. And uh, I suppose it's quite salient talking about it on the day after Heidi Allen defected finally as well, about um, the, the quite large minority of Conservative voters who are remain or were remain voters 
and who now feel homeless, politically mm. homeless. So what was it particularly that picked, uh, pricked up your ears about yeah. that piece? Well, one is, um, I think, just the general point, which we've mentioned a few times before on this podcast, that there are as many Tory Remainers as Labour Leavers, but the Tory Remainers, at least until very recently, have had not nearly as much attention as the Labour Leavers. The other, which I thought was, I'm, I'm still not quite sure what to make of it, but the political... Um, divergence that, that Gabby pointed to in her piece is not so much the one between open and closed, which we've often talked about, about maybe mm-hmm. politics is realigning on, on, on that sort of spectrum, liberal, authoritarian, open, closed, nor is it the left-right one, but more is sort of chaos versus order. Right. Um, and yeah. so you have, yeah. you know, the Dominic Cummings type mm. sort of uh, anarchic conservatism, as it were, of sort of really, really liking disrupting things rule of law, that's for wimps, etc., versus people who just want a bit more quiet and orderly life. Yeah. Um, and that's a very different way of looking at politics mm. that doesn't really fit with either of those other two spectrums that neatly either. Yeah, so yeah. I thought there's, there's some interesting thought-provoking stuff in there, and I'll, we'll include a link to the full prospect piece in the show notes. Yeah. Definitely recommend to people that they have a read of it because it's a really, really good piece. But I think what it does get at in the, through this different lens is that point that you touched on, Stephen, around, you know, if you're a... If you're somebody who is basically reasonably content with you know, public services being provided by the state, but you don't want the extent of the state to be extended that much, you think that, yeah, richer people paying a bit more tax is reasonable, but you also want to sort of care for people who are less, less well off, you think things like the rule of law is really important, you're maybe quite a strong supporter of the police, etc. You know, that sort of traditional, mm. as they would often have seen it, relatively unideological conservatism. Yeah. Um, you know the classic, the sort of classic conservatism of sort of bank managers and stockbrokers in Surrey. You know, in, in in decades gone past, where do they? Where do such people go? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and it looks like the Conservative Party is not really that keen on holding on to them. There is obviously a little bit of a risk for the Liberal Democrats um, because there's a fair degree of overlap in in both values and policy positions at the moment between sort of Liberal Democrat beliefs and that group of people. But you can easily see how, particularly a few years down the road, if, say, the economy is, is growing more strongly again, if we've you know, managed to stop Brexit and the economy's back on the right track, actually there's, there's some definite fault lines you can imagine sure. opening up there. Um, and it also would be quite surprising, really, if, if we don't end up with any other political party at some point trying to pitch for that, what is you know, quite a large um, and potentially powerful political bloc. Yeah, but it's, I, mean, I always remember... Um, it was Danny Finkelstein uh, who wrote shortly after the 2015 general election when Cameron had become the first Conservative leader uh, since John Major to win a, a majority. And he said, uh, and he is a you know he's a Conservative peer, um, so he comes from that um, perspective. Mm-hmm. But he is former SDP turned Conservative um, peer, and um, he said, you know, what I take this election to mean is that uh, there is a uh, majority sentiment, whether it expressed itself in Tory voting or not, but a majority sentiment for government which runs the ec- economy competently mm. and provides decent public services. And I, I think that's that kind of definition of sensible, mm. moderate, um, uh, kind of small L liberal uh, way of running things is, is uh, I, I guess, where um, we traditionally think of uh, small C conservatism and yet doesn't have a home mm. at the moment. And we've seen it in terms of you know, people like Rory Stewart being they have to leave the party. Um, you've got um, uh, Ruth um, 
Ruth Davidson. Davidson, thank you. Up in Scotland, uh, not only now having uh, stood down as Tory leader, but looking like she will stand back from politics mm. completely. So those kind of uh, figures who Conservatives would have previously looked to and thought, well, OK, I, there's still some hope for my party. There mm. is still a place as long as they are around, Amber Rudd, etc. Mm. They are, they're, they're drifting away. And I quite like the line that um, one of the Conservatives that Gabby Hinsliff interviewed came up with, um, who said, uh, I decided that Boris deserved the benefit of the doubt, but at what point do I let the facts change my mind? <laughs> um, which was an interesting way of putting it. So I'm not, I think what, what's interesting about this whole kind of uh, dynamic is how far the next election ends up being a battle between, is it the election of the small towns? Because there's been lots of mm. post-Brexit focus on these small towns, the left-behind yeah. areas. Or is it actually the most important dynamic going to be that it's an election of the suburbs? And yeah. it's those kind of conservative, um, uh, sensible voters who suddenly feel like their party has deserted them to an extent that they can't anymore support it. Of course, it could be both dynamics simultaneously that exert themselves. Yep. But I wonder whether all the focus on the, on the, uh, on the small towns and those uh, left behind and, uh, and Labour leavers will actually be less of an issue at the next election, potentially, than the Conservative Remainer voters. We will see. Yeah, and I, I think one thing I think that is driving that imbalance in coverage is a mistake, but a well-intentioned mistake, which is I think a lot of people in the media who are, you know, media is generally a middle-class profession. Mm -hmm. Obviously, a lot of the British political media is very centred on London and so on. Unlike uh, this podcast. voted uh, very heavily <laughs> Remain. Uh, stuff like that about your referendum vote, Stephen. But, you know, is I think a lot of, particularly in the wake of the referendum result, a lot of that media nexus felt quite guilty yeah. about did we pay enough attention to places like Boston and Lincolnshire. And so you now see regular vox popping and so on, mm -hmm. so on where yeah. journalists go out areas that voted leave even though of course loads of areas voted remain yeah. when was the last time you saw the bbc go and do vox pops in a remain voting area yeah. certainly they overwhelmingly do go to leave voting area and it is also true that generally speaking um the areas that have the biggest sort of challenges in terms of poverty in terms of sort of social exclusion and related issues uh, there's quite a strong overlap between that and leave voting mm -hmm. It's more complicated about exactly who voted remain and leave in those areas. But and, and again, you can see why, you know, if you've got a choice about, well, do we go and cover some relatively affluent, well-off people or do we cover the challenges of people facing uh, you know, poverty and social exclusion? Why, again, there's a there's a well-intentioned media sort of almost feeling of guilt that we need to pay more attention to that latter group. Yeah. The risk from the point of view of trying to understand what's happening in an election, though, is that, as you as you rightly say, the election really therefore gets fought out in a whole set of areas where the media are generally not looking. Now, I think that is beginning to change, partly mm -hmm. because of the Liberal Democrats going off to some quite high-profile uh, sort of seats like Dominic Raab's constituency, and therefore that just pulls in the media yeah. interest. But I think you're right, it, it's one of the things that will be really clear in retrospect, but for the moment it's quite unclear, is what will be the key battleground of the election? Yeah. Well, it's a theme I imagine we will return to uh, in the, in the coming weeks yes. as, so. we, uh, as we get past the Brexit deadline, we imagine, and uh, move towards a general election who knows when. Um, so thank you very much, everyone, for listening. A quick reminder, the recording of that live show with Sean and Polly will go up in the feed in a few days' time. So do subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcast app.
And of course, if you are already a subscriber, please do leave a review or a rating. Um, it seems like all podcasts ask for them, claiming that they will help it be seen by the podcast be seen and come across by more listeners. The actual evidence is a little bit hazy on that, but it does wonders for the podcast host seeing nice reviews and ratings. Yeah. So thank you very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>